0: a listener production howdy you are listening to episode 132 part b of the howie games our olympic special on how to become one of the fastest men on the planet featuring sprint machine at bolden ready <laughs> set yes go okay mate let's take me to 97 world titles and 200 give me a brief description of what's
1: required to run a 200 meters John Drummond starts in lane one in the men's 200 meters final. Atto Bolden of Trinidad in lane three, the fastest man in the world this year at 1977.
2: You have to have the patience to know when to actually floor it and then the discipline to hold your form when you're feeling the fatigue because you are going to feel the fatigue. It is half a lap. Um, That 200 in Athens at the World Championships was significant for me because I had come back in 97 feeling like I don't ever want to experience the, uh, the pain of losing um, a hundred meter um, like I did in Atlanta. And here's the favorite, I
0: think he's favorite, Otto Bolden, he was third at the Olympics last year. He's been the man of these championships so far. 987, set the championships alight last night.
2: So I came back, again, breezing through the rounds, and then the heat in Athens finally caught up with me and I was cramping pretty badly in the final and only finished fifth. Almost set. And me.
0: Good start. Bolden out fast. Green beat them out. Bailey reasonably away. Ripley's away well. I reckon Bolden's in trouble. Green just in front.
1: Bailey coming at him hard. Green's got them. Green's done it.
2: Well, Bolden was never a factor. So now back home, they were like, maybe Mr. Golden Bolden isn't as golden as we thought he was. <laughs> so now for the first, yeah, now for the first time, I really have people going, eh. I don't know. we don't we don't know if this guy is, is is the one. There's no
1: doubt that the favorites I think will be in Lane three, Atto Bolden and in Lane four, Frank Fredericks.
2: so the two hundred was sort of me proving myself and saying, hey, I, I am capable of winning um, on a given day." I just you know I've, I've had I've had some really bad luck this week. And Bolden off very well indeed. So
1: too is Garcia out in lane six. Fredericks now getting into his running around the bend. Bolden
2: in lane three. He's well up on Fredericks. John Drummond running well on the inside. So the the 200 was great. Um, The 200, the the time wasn't particularly fast, but um, to become your country's first in anything, and certainly for me to be your first athletics world champion, I'd already become the first um, world under 20 champion. That was very, very significant because, you know, (laughs) first is forever
1: Drummond running well on the inside and also Garcia still with the Greek coming up under your topless but look at Bolden Bolden is going clear of the field Bolden is going to win by a big margin Fredericks is there in second place and Claudinei da Silva of Brazil just gets up to take the bronze medal well a very clear victory indeed there for Atto Bolden he may have disappointed in the hundred but he's come good in the 200 meters so Frequent
0: listeners of this show know that my kids often ask questions of the guest Addo. One is 11, one is (laughs) 9. Now, you get my 11-year-old. Her name is Sky, but she operates, because we all have nicknames here in Australia, Addo, as The Pickle, okay?
2: (laughs) The Pickle, all right, got it. So
0: you get the question from Barwon Heads where I am in Victoria all the way to Tokyo from The Pickle in relation to that 200-metre win when you became world champion. Okay. Hi, Addo Pickle here. I really like athletics, and I like the two hundred meters as well. Anyway, Dad was showing me the video of you winning the ninety-seven World Championships for the two hundred meters. Wow, you're so fast! What is it like to win in front of so many people and know you're the fastest man on the planet?
2: That's a great. That's a great question. There, the, the pickle has done her homework. Um, <laughs> It, it it was special for me in in a number of ways. One, remember, it's redemption. I was supposed to win the hundred. I didn't. I didn't even medal. Um, people back home are saying, you know, maybe I'm I'm not as good as I think I am. So it's on the one hand, it's on the one hand, it's relief for that. on On the second, on the second hand, it's my country's first world title ever in. Uh, in, in track and field, and we have, and quite frankly, we don't have a lot of world titles in in other sports either. We have we have netball, and we've had some since, but we, we don't have we had we had one in a couple in boxing. So it's 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 pretty significant in terms of my country's history, but more importantly, I think it's sort of you know early in your career to get that kind of win. It kind of confirms that all the hard work that you've been doing will pay off because all I had had up until that point was, you know, was was bronze medal. So to to finally get that one gold was was huge and I went back home and we had we had a, a lot of partying to do.
0: As they could party like nowhere on the planet if anyone's been to Carnival in Trinidad, <laughs> they'll understand <laughs> That's that. That's for sure. Do you sit back and think in 1997, over 200 metres, this is the bit that blows my mind, there's no one on the planet that can cover that distance as quick as me like there's a lot of Olympic sports we can't all pole vault right because we don't have the equipment or we <laughs> right. can't all do equestrian because we might not have a horse right but the majority of us can run so what is it like to be the fastest man on the planet
2: I do recall on many occasions um I think it's a death clock a death clock that there is in the United States and it shows all the the number of people on the on the planet and you look at that thing and I don't know if that at the time it was probably saying seven or eight billion I remember thinking that's just nuts. So of all of those people, like all of, of all of those people, nobody can run 200 meters faster than me. It it, it does blow your mind sometimes. But um, as I told you at the top, it's one of the things that I, I regret, but I never got the chance or I never spent the time to sort of soak up what I had done. I was always on to the next thing. Okay. You won worlds this year. You have Commonwealth games in 98. Okay. You won Commonwealth games. You have world championships in 99. So there was always this like, you know, look in the, you know, look through the windscreen as opposed to the rearview mirror, because the thing that's ahead of you is the thing that's more important.
0: Talk to me about the discipline in a lifestyle and diet approach to being one of the fastest men in the world. Okay. Let's talk diet. (laughs) What, what, what is your diet when you want to become the fastest cat on the planet?
2: I wish I could tell you that you know we you know I, I, I was drinking you know green juice my whole career. It, it simply wasn't <laughs> the case. The truth is that you when you are training, you have to be smart about your diet and you can't just be off eating I mean just just sensible stuff you just you're gonna eat wholesome food. but when you're getting something for something when you're getting ready for something that's really huge, yeah. you have to be very, very stringent about your diet. And I remember, in our, um, in our team, we we were doing Airbnb before Airbnb was a thing. So we got a lovely house. We got a lovely house in uh, in Australia in Sydney yeah um, at the beach, and I remember we had we had our own chef, and every day he you know, he asked us what we want to eat. And that's how meticulous it has to be when you're getting ready for for the Olympics, especially like me, I was running rounds and had to be running eight rounds in 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 not particularly warm weather for me. So no, it 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 does get very, very stringent. Now, what we did that back then is nothing compared to what they do now,
0: just so people can understand how you're fueled. what What's a typical breakfast? when you are at your peak leading up to the Olympics?
2: I'm kind of a carbs guy. So I would probably have um, some pancakes of some sort and then some kind of breakfast meat and some orange juice and that's it. That's Lunch? That's, that's breakfast. Lunch? Lunch, uh, here's the thing. I, I was really a two meal a day person. And of course okay. all the nutritionists would tell you, oh no, you should, should not have done that. But for me, that's, that's what worked. What was the second meal? My second meal would be a, a huge helping of protein and then, uh, you know, something, something again, sensible, some spinach or some brown rice and uh, and maybe another vegetable.
0: And what about, uh, I think we've learned a lot in the last 15 years in the general population the importance of hydration. Yes. Uh, are you just taking in water throughout the day or how, how are you keeping and how hydrated do you need to be?
2: I'm like a camel. You could line up ten bottles of like a liter of water here, and I can just chug them. That's that's my gift. My gift is to be able to consume mass quantities of water. So, yeah, <laughs> nobody had, tried mate. to keep. What nobody tries. Nobody tried to keep up with me because I was Mr. Camel. I could drink more water than anybody else. But uh, <laughs> yeah, hydration. Hydration is very important, obviously.
0: Okay, take me to Sydney then. Take me to the men's hundred final, but take me through the day, at home, like the processes, the procedures. And then I really wanna break into the race and you break it down to me and explain to me what's required. So the, the men's 100 in Sydney, I presume you would have had to run a semi-final and a final on the same evening. Mm-hmm. So you, you wake up in the morning, take me through your day.
2: <laughs> okay, so the first thing is that Trinidad and Tobago had been providing a car for me and the car was taking me from our house to the stadium and back. And for the first round and the and the and the quarterfinal, Maurice had been riding with me.
0: So you were living with him. You you, yes. you, were, you were living with Maurice.
2: Yes, he had one suite downstairs. I had one suite upstairs. Uh, Inger Miller was in that house. John Drummond was in that house. May have been one or two others that I'm forgetting. But yes, we had we had booked that house.
0: And he's your main competitor.
2: Yes, but he's also my clubmate.
0: Yeah, okay, so how are you handling? Before we get into the car situation, how are you handling the dynamic between? Two of the favourites to to win the most storied race at the Olympics. How are you doing that?
2: I think Maurice and I always separated who we were from what we did. So yeah, I it's not like I was walking around making eyes at him because he was my <laughs> competitor or or vice versa. It's like look, whoever has the better race this evening is is going to win, and 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 no amount of staring down and 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 any kind of silliness was going to change that. So no, we were fine, but I think Maurice was a little offended. <laughs> In retrospect, because he was like, huh, "What?" Because I was like, uh, "You got to find your own car today." Because I and it's and it's not uh, even a, that's. I think that's that's not even gamesmanship. It was just me saying, you know what, my country is providing a car for me. It's my job to go out there. I don't need to. I don't need to be accommodating Maurice on this particular day. Okay, okay, I love it. The day after, sure. So um, it was it was a normal day, except that I was coming off of an injury the year before. I wasn't feeling great through the rounds. I was feeling good. And um, I remember going going to the track and in the semifinal, I only got third, but it was kind of my plan because I always felt like in the finals, Maurice kind of keyed off of me. So I wanted to get out of the center of the race. Um, as it turned out, I because I got third in the semifinal, I ended up in lane eight and I figured, I, okay, yeah. this would be this would be great because Maurice and everybody else was in the middle. I'd be in lane eight.
0: And a contrast with Edzo Bolden, who was disappointing in the semi. He's got to pick up the pieces 80 minutes later and try and run the race of his life. He was third
2: four years ago behind Bailey and Fredericks. Under
0: enormous pressure from his country.
2: Being in lane eight back then meant that this is before the gun came out of the speakers behind you. It used to be that the gun came from the inside, wherever the gun was. And the sound oh. had to physically get to you. Huge that's- disadvantage for me in lane eight.
0: Wow. So
2: I just des- Because of so the I time the audio takes to get to you. That's right. It's
0: that it's that fine a margin.
2: <laughs> wait for it. So I decide I'm gonna guess the gun. I am literally gonna wait until he says set and go when I think the gun is going to sound. And I guess correctly. So that's a secret I think I'm gonna take to my grave until somebody writes uh, an entire thesis on why I had to have guessed because by the time I moved, based on my reaction time, the sound of the gun hadn't gotten to me yet. It, it blew my mind. It wow. blew my mind because I never thought I would see that represented in numbers because wow. I thought I was the only person that knew that I had guessed. So anyway.
0: So, so before you get to the start, I, I like the detail I'm after, let's go. The, the semifinal finishes, what's the gap between the semifinal and the final?
2: Maybe an hour and a half.
0: What are you doing for a year and a half? It's the oh, biggest race of your in your career at this point.
2: Yeah, we're in the back. Um, everybody's taking turns um, getting treated by our physio. Um, not a not a whole lot being said, just like, you know, just small talk. But for the most part, everybody's kind of off doing their own thing. We're just back there kind of in our own world. But. It it doesn't. I don't think if anybody was able to see it like over a fence, they would think, "Oh yeah, these these two are about to run for you know for the hundred meter Olympic title." It it looks normal because we're used to doing it.
0: And how do you keep yourself in the present and to not think about the result, which is all we hear in sport today—worry about the process, not the end result. How do you do that? And 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 are there nerves coming at? At an Olympic final, it's the most watched sporting event on the planet. At that point,
2: I, I don't think if I don't think you you're honest if you say you're not nervous. But it's not a it's not a bad nervous. I, I always say that if if you can embrace your adrenaline, that's where the great performances are. So yes, you, you your your brain knows that you're about to have the the biggest fight of your life. Um, your nervous system is ready f- to to actually go out there and 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 be the best it's ever been but it's not a it's not a crippling nerves it's not a oh my gosh it's a you know i can't i, I can't wait for this we spend the other 364 huh. days of the year getting ready for nights like tonight you you, yeah. know, you 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 think you're you think you're you think you're hot stuff well you're going to get a chance to go show it with the whole planet watching so it 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 really is a i think i miss that i mean i don't miss the training and all that stuff obviously but i think that when i think back about my career I miss the nights when you know the entire planet is going to be focused on what you do for a living.
0: That's that's intense, isn't it? Because it is the entire planet. So you walk out uh, into the Sydney Olympic Stadium and I was lucky enough to be working there and I got to go there, so there's a hundred, I think it was used to be, it was typically 112, 113,000 people yep. in that stadium. And and you walk out and you are the eight gladiators. Like it's giving me shivers thinking about it now. Like it's so
2: cool, don't. It really was. And um, I mean, let's face it, Australian athletics fans are, are some of the best. So I'm looking at all the Trinidad and Tobago flags in the stands. People are interacting with me. People are, you know, wishing me good luck. I'm hearing people talking to Maurice. I'm hearing people talking to to other people in the race. I remember because I'm in lane eight. I'm up closest to the to the stands. Okay. So it really was a unique experience. I I only ran two of my Olympic finals from lane eight, but I remember being that one as being so much closer to the fans because usually I was obviously in three or four or five. So it was a very unique experience, but one that that you know I'll never forget.
0: Back to Addo in a tick. As per usual, there will still be a full episode out this Thursday. we've been busy in the old Howie Games studio featuring the goat of snowboarding, Sean White. Now, if you've missed Sean's player profile, which always contains stuff not heard in the pod, go back and check it out, including Sean's story about Andre Agassi. You'll have met a lot of what we would call famous people, celebrities, well-known people. (laughs) Of all the higher-profile people you've met in your life, Sean, give me someone that's made an impression on you. Oh wow. Um Andre Agassi, I would say. Um, Andre Agassi has written the best sports book I have ever read. Open. Yeah, open. Yeah, yeah, I read that. It was great. Um you know, to have a career like he did and to write that kind of a book and just lay it all out and um you know, it's funny cuz when we met, I was I was shooting a commercial and it was for American Express and um he was there with all these other Ellen DeGeneres and and, um, Holly Berry and all, all these celebrities. And like, he kept staring at me during the take. And I was like,
2: what? like is, there, <laughs> is there something on my face? And then, like the cut would end and there he is staring at me again. And I finally like, was like, what's up? Like, w- w- what's going on? And he's just like, ah, oh, you know, I like your hair. <laughs> like, is that? Cause that's been when I had the long, he's like, you're gonna have that hair until you're like 80. You know, but we hit it off and I still call him from time to time for advice on things because he's been through it all. (laughs)
0: That's Sean White from his player profile. Sean's full episode drops this Thursday. On we go with Addo. So when they start to call you to the blocks, the physical work is done at this stage, and I presume this is where the mental side of things Comes in. We, we nowadays, twenty twenty one. It's all about visualization. I'll get to how you run the race, but are, are you mentally picturing the race, or what are you? Or are you blanking it out, or are you thinking about what you had for breakfast? What are you doing?
2: <laughs> no, you better not be thinking about anything when that gun goes <laughs> off. I am. It, it. It is like a choreographed dance. I know how I want to react to the gun. I know how I want to push out from the blocks in my drive phase, where I want to stand up, where I want to do my damage in the race. And then for me, I am sort of hearkening back to the mistakes that I made in Atlanta and making sure that this does not happen to me now. So I remember thinking to myself, "Do not, even though you're in lane eight, do not turn and look. Because if it is a, if it is a close finish, this and getting to the line with your chest first May be the difference between hmm. silver and gold, or gold, or, or uh, silver and bronze, or bronze and nothing. So I'm, I'm telling myself, you know, remember, don't look, just run the whole race and lean at the tape.
0: There's no room for mistakes here. This is the most important race of their life. So they're almost set. Green four from the left. Okay. So now, this is this is the bit that really interests me, Addo. You're in the blocks. Take me through what you are trying to do over 10, 15-meter minute meter stages of a 100-meter race. And not necessarily, you can use Sydney as an example, but what is the perfect race and how do you run it? T- to be running under 10 seconds, I think you did it 28 times or something, it's ridiculous.
2: That night in Sydney, I am thinking, oh, remember, I'm going to guess the gun. So that's yep. the first bit of like, and, and that takes that takes bravado, that takes confidence. Yeah. If you guess wrong, you you know, you you remember, I don't exactly have good luck with false starts at the Olympics. Yeah. So when I make a decision that I'm going to uh, that I'm going to guess, it means that I have to be really sharp and I have to be really on. So what I'm doing is while we're waiting for the gun, I am listening to the starter and listening to his cadence. Set, pow. Set, pow. So in my head I have a sense of when he's going to shoot the gun now. So that so we recall to the blocks. Remember, I'm on the outside. The guns, the, the gun's up in the air. Set. And I decide, okay, I'm moving. And the gun sounds and I go, ooh, that went well. Don't throw it away. Keep pushing. Settle again. Almost set. Away. Green good start. Bolden got a terrific start
0: out wide. Keep
2: pushing. Keep pushing. Okay, now stand up. Relax, relax. Fight, 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 fight. And I lean. And there's Maurice. So I've gotten second.
0: So when you burst out of the blocks, is it more arms or legs to get yourself going?
2: More arms first. Okay. and it's, then It's more arms in the early going. It's more legs in the later going.
0: And, and you stay in that crouch. What's the purpose of the crouch and when do you come out of the crouch?
2: Right. So the way I explain it to my, my young athletes learning it for the first time, you're driving a Range Rover and the Range Rover stalls on the side of the road. And now you have to get it moving. You're not going to push it from standing straight up. You're going to have some relative angle so that you can get your feet under you and really get this thing going. Because all you're trying to do in that part of the race is overcome inertia. So the reason why you stay on is because that's the best angle from which to push. You wouldn't push that Range Rover from here because it wouldn't go very far. That's the angle you want to be at to push. So that's why you see world-class sprinters push from that angle. And the act of keeping it that long actually started with Maurice and myself and my group because it was it was my coach that sort of invented that.
0: So at what metre mark are you at your upright position?
2: Um, in a perfect world, you probably want to be up at about 30, 35. Um, I probably came up at about 28, 29, and Maurice probably came up around the same time.
0: And at what point in the 100 is your speed at its maximum?
2: you're probably going to hit your max speed between 45 and 50 soon after you come out of that dry phase you're going to hit your your top speed about 45 50 meters by 55 60 you're just trying to to not decelerate so much that you can get to the line uh, ahead
0: what's the top speed when you're at, at that high point
2: um i think for i think for me it was Low 27s. 27 miles an hour. 27 miles per hour for us. I think Donovan still has the record for like instant top speed. He hit 28 at one point, and he that's even faster than Bolt did. Bolt had a faster average over yep. the 100, but in terms of instantaneous like radar gun speed, I still think Donovan has that record at like 28.2 miles per hour, which is, which is very impressive.
0: And does your speed decrease because of fatigue? Does fatigue come in?
2: Or not? Yes. Well, it's it's fatigue, but it's not in the, in the sense of like a miler. Um, sprinting is anaerobic. So at some point you are going to go through your energy sources. Um, your muscles are going to run out of energy sources. And that's what causes deceleration. That's why training is so important, because if you train your muscles to be able to not be as fatigued in 100 metres.
0: Green and bold and it's not going to be much
2: in it. You're going to, you know, that's where you get uh, a Usain Bolt or a Shelley Ann Fraser Price.
0: And how do you stick to what you're doing when you said, as you said, you know, you, you got that amazing start and then you, you sense someone beside you, which was your mate and your training partner, Maurice Green. Mm-hmm. What happens when all of a sudden there's there's that sense of someone beside
2: you, Ado? Oh, that's when you have to keep your nerve because right if there's some, if there's somebody beside you, you are fighting them for the gold obviously if if you lose that battle you get silver but if you start throwing away your own race then you go from gold to silver to bronze to you you didn't medal or maybe yeah, you're, okay. maybe you're dead last so yeah there there is a component of holding your nerve and holding your form because that's what's going to get you to the line not not tensing up not trying to muscle your way down there but the act of relaxation and i think that's that's the respect that sprinters get you have to be in this uber competitive thing where um you know a thousandth of a second decides first from third sometimes or first from second and yet you know it's 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 pretty intense
0: and when you get to the line and like what's the what's the um technique of what what's what part of the body should hit the line first
2: ideally your uh, your torso So that's why you see some some people do this and and twist. Uh, Karsten Warholm, who's the who just broke the world record in the four hundred meter hurdles from Norway, he's he's very old school. They used to do this. They used to twist at the line so that it forces your it forces your uh, your shoulder across. That's actually a very good uh, good method. A lot of people. I wasn't a great leaner, but a lot of people don't uh, don't lean correctly. You want to you want to lean across the line such that your uh, your torso breaks the tape. Green's got him now and moves away and runs
0: 9.88. Confirms his greatness like Marion Jones with a brilliant win. We've got the two mates there, Green and Bolden. And they've run first and second and Bolden's inside 10 as well. Bolden had a great first 60. 9.87 Green and 9.99 for Bolden. Thompson third in 10.04. And then bang, it's finished. It's, it, it is literally like that you are the in this stage you're the second fastest man on the planet which is an incredible achievement is that enough
2: no because nobody trains to be second i mean yeah. when you, go, you you can't you can't you can't hand back the silver medal it's it's still a heck of an accomplishment but um if you want to see disappointment in 100 don't look at the medalists look at those who haven't medaled
0: huh.
2: so you know the, the bronze medalist is is just happy he or she got something the silver medalist is probably, um, as Jerry Seinfeld says, the, the, hardest, uh, the hardest medal to win because you're like, oh, I was, I was right there. I, <laughs> yeah. uh, he, has a, he has a routine about that that is so
0: accurate, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. Although I, I think I have a problem with that silver medal.
2: I think if I was an Olympic athlete, I would rather come in last than win the silver. If you think about it, you know, you win the gold, you feel good. You win the bronze, you think, well, at least I got something. But you win that silver. That's like, congratulations, you almost won. Of all the losers, you came in first of that group. You're the number one loser. No one lost ahead of you. And, um, but 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 no i i think that yeah initially you may be a little disappointed but but you look around and you realize listen there's some people their whole careers don't have any of these and and when i win that silver in sydney that's my third medal so it's it's not i've i've now won more than anybody in the history of my country so it the you know it's it, it's good and bad i i guess i should say obviously you want every medal you win to be gold but at the at the same time you you know you have you're getting a lot of love from back home from people who are going hey you know you just you just continue to pile up the medals.
0: So retirement for an elite athlete, do, doing some reading, you, you mentioned you're at, at 2004. Did you? Did I read, Addo, that you unfortunately had a, an an accident, an automobile accident at, at some stage?
2: Yeah, in 2002 I was back home uh, visiting my dad and on the way back home a drunk driver hit me head on. And that was effectively the end of my career. I didn't re- retire until 2004. But that was effectively the end of my career because I um, I was never the same. I was always injured. I was, uh, I never felt, I never felt comfortable at top speed after that. Something always, it always, it's like you put, it's like you put a a, dam- a car that's been injured in and a- that's been damaged in an accident and the car posts to the right for the, the rest of the time that you own it. That's what it felt like to me. My body never felt like it was in alignment after that accident.
0: You might have, might, uh... Thank you for the full description of what's required. Um, I think when you're injured with your hammy, you started on the BBC for the first time, and you've made an incredible broadcasting career. How'd you go? Like first time you you, you stepped into a commentary box, were you were you edgy? Was it for the BBC? It was. Uh, I was
2: 1999, and I was injured. It's the only only meet I ever missed due to injury, and I remember thinking, "Yeah, um, I could do this." I think I'm, I think I'm more comfortable in a com- commentary box than I am in, in starting blocks, to be honest. Um, I come from a family of talkers, so <laughs> it, it never felt it never felt like a, it never felt um, it never felt weird to me. and you know how discerning the, the British uh, the British audience can be. Yes. and I think the fact that I fact, the fact that I was well liked uh, early there, I think was my sort of my incentive to keep going.
0: And now you've got a great partnership with our, our, our mate that we mentioned at the start, Lee Diffie, um, who, if you haven't listened to his episode on the show, go back and listen because this is a Queensland school teacher um, who started calling motorbike racing. And now, he, alongside you, he's calling the biggest races at the Olympics on the biggest television network at the Olympics. Yep. What a tremendous privilege to sit there and be able to comment on the best in the world
2: to probably the world's
0: biggest audience.
2: Noah Lyles is in five. When you come to the Olympic trials, you almost discard the paper. You trust what your eyes are telling you. Yeah, and people ask me all the time, Oh, don't you miss track and field? And I go, How can I miss it? I am I am on every recording made of, of anything that's significant, certainly for the United States. All of those you say in boat races, that's my voice calling all, you know, calling all those world records. It's Just like he performs every time he's on the big stage. That's the second fastest time he's ever run. And his advantage is this time. He came here and he didn't even have to run the best race he's ever run. Everybody else had to run a personal best just to compete. And, you know, as I said at the, at the, at the beginning, I get to express my passion for athletics through that medium. So I don't feel like I miss a thing. I don't, I don't miss a thing, I can't run anymore, I'm almost 50. <laughs> so now I get to express my passion for my sport through television.
0: And you look at Bolt 958, were you there that night?
2: Oh yeah, I was there, I was in the building for every single world record he ever set, including the first one in New York. Best.
1: There's the start and Bolt got a good one and Gay's right ready and throws us off a foul. Bailey's there too. But here's Bolt. Bolt charging to the front. Gay's coming but
2: can't catch him. Hussein Bolt. Look at the time. 9-5-8. World record. I told you, Tom Hammond, we were going to see a 9-5 tonight. The wind is okay. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, it is into a headwind. There is no one on this planet or any other one that we know of that has ever run that fast.
0: So is the man that's been there and done it and lived it and run a nine, what did you do, a nine yourself? 86. So you've run a 986. I can remember when that 958 flashed up and it, <laughs> it was like, oh, there must be something wrong with the timing system. For a man that's <laughs> lived it and breathed it, what does that
2: time mean to you? What's funny is that of his two fastest uh, times, of his three fastest times, the 958 world record is not even the most impressive one. The most impressive one is the one everybody else remembers as well. The one from Beijing, uh-huh. where he gets the 70 meters and starts like beating his chest and going, where is everybody? I thought yeah, this was yeah, supposed yeah. to be a race. Um, that is still the most impressive 100 meter race I have ever seen in my life. Because... I mean, in real time, I said on our air, I said, I think he just threw away 9.59. Here they come down the track. Usain Bolt sprinting ahead, winning by daylight. And setting a world record, 9.68. The wind is okay. New world record. How easy was that? It no longer is good enough to be sub-10. They have now gone into the realm of video game times 9.69 for Usain Bolt, and he made it look easy. I have never seen another 100-meter Olympic champion run that easy. He dominated this field. This has never been seen before in Olympic history, ever. It's not even close. He's able to celebrate 15 meters from the finish and still destroys his own world record of 9.72. I think he possibly, Tom and Lewis, threw away a 9.59. So, I mean, I got sort of vindicated the next year when he ran 9.58. But who's to say that night that he wasn't going to run 9.55 or 9.54? I mean, it was the most explosive 30 to 70 meters I'd ever seen in my life. So um, I I, I always say, if you got to see Usain run on television, you know, consider yourself fortunate. But if you got to see him run in person and you got to put your eyes and see somebody moving, you know, for a hundred meters that quickly, you were really, really blessed. And and I consider myself very blessed to have seen every one of those records, both 100 and 200 meters.
0: That's a great answer. It's obviously, because of the margin of the race is so small, any incremental change, and, and that was a massive incremental change. Mm-hmm. Do you have an idea in your head? You, you described what what your athlete is doing now with diet and training compared to what you were doing 20 years ago and how much it's changed. So obviously technology and training and diet and, and everything will continue to improve. Do you, have an, do you have a number in your mind that is achievable and then a number that below that you just can't see it? Like are, are we going to see a nine... Five zero at some stage in our lifetimes, or or is it getting to the, the? There must be a point where things are not physically possible. I guess. Where's that point?
2: Well, yeah, we're not gonna see. Eight, I'm not gonna see eight nine in my lifetime. Neither will you. Um, but I think nine four is probably, or nine three is probably possible because, you know, we're seeing the advent now of like these super spikes. And in fact, Usain Bolt um, had a quote recently where he said, if you'd have given me those, you know, super spikes with whatever they're doing yeah you know, the, carbon the shoe yeah. now. Right. If you'd have given me those, I think he said, he think he he could have run nine five low or nine four. I don't, I don't doubt that. But um I think, I think in my lifetime, I'll see it be nine five low.
0: All right. Now you get my son Ada you've had the pickle. Now, my son, he's a bit of a loose cannon, is the only way to describe him. (laughs) He's nine. His nickname is the Big Penguin. (laughs) And he seems to, for whatever reason, have a slightly alternate view of life. So we watched seven or eight of your races this morning over porridge. (laughs) And uh, and this is what he came up with. Okay, you ready? All right. Hey, Atto, Big Penguin here. First off, I think you're so fast. You were so fast. If I was that fast, I would be so good at footy. Not that you probably know what that is. Anyway, I noticed that you always run in sunglasses. And I'm looking at a few now, and it looks like you're going into space. They were curling over the back of your head and stuff. Where did you get that idea from? Did it make you run faster? <laughs> hey, mate, is that excited about your Oakleys, it's not funny.
2: That is hilarious. And his eyewear, you have to oh, run fast oh, if you no wear way that. Way Somebody way. might be chasing you. Oh, I to get got it. them too. We saw Alexander wear them in the first round this morning and surprised that Otto who shows up with that space age eyewear. There is a story. There's a story that just came out in Vogue this week about how those glasses have lasted 21 years now. I wore them for the first time in Sydney in 2000. 21 years later, they're still being talked about. They're still being worn by performers and actors and, and actresses. Um, well, describe I only them wore, those
0: if the people. Need to Google you and they'll see them. But describe them as they, as I said, a nine-year-old looked like you, you. Thought you're off to so Mars. We're
2: used to sun. We're used to sunglasses that that do this, right? They yeah. they hook around your eyes. So these just have the these just have the lenses and then they go up above your head. They call over the top, right. and they're not like any of the. They're not like any other sunglasses and. Anybody that that's brave enough to wear them should be used to, uh, should you know, should be expecting stares.
0: <laughs> and did they make you run faster? That's
2: what he wanted to know. No, 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 <laughs> not at all. Not at okay. all, but they were good for, were good for fashion.
0: <laughs> hey, mate, you've been great with your time, and I've loved the discussion. For two blokes that haven't met before, I really appreciate it. I asked you about advice to, you, to your athlete and athletes earlier on, but I'll ask you a similar question but we are blessed to have a lot of kids listening to this show with their parents um, and at the moment here in Victoria where I'm in, we're in lockdown so that they can't do what they want to be doing to go to footy or soccer or tennis or cricket or arts, et cetera. But for those that do want to achieve something at home, it doesn't need to be in the athletic field. It can be as a pianist or a, a bricklayer or whatever but a, a young kid that is listening with dreams in their mind, from all your amazing experiences, what advice would you give them?
2: I think that many people tend to listen too much to detractors. And I think, you know, maybe you would look at me and you'd think, oh yeah, you've always had you know, all, all sorts of support. No, I had I had people in my own family who said, "Ah, you should probably go get you know go get that that uh, that law degree because you know mm-hmm. you, you're a good talker. There's there's no real future for you in uh, in, in track and field." And I, I think back to how you have to be so driven and you have to be so sure about what you want that when the detractors come or you start having a hard time along the path, that you go, "It's okay." I'm working towards something and I know that at the end of it, it's going to be there. And the way I express that to my athletes is I say, okay, what if I told you that at the end of a 300 mile trip, you're going to have a pot of gold sitting there waiting for you? You wouldn't worry about mile one or mile three or mile 200 because you have to, you have, and that's what champions have. Champions have that, that commitment and that they have that, that surety in their head. They're convinced, right? Champions are convinced. They're convinced that the end of it, they're going to have the championship. They're going to have the medal. They're going to have the record. And so many people, the minute that things get, you know, a little uncomfortable, they go, oh, well, this is it. I, I can't possibly go on. It's like, no, remember your 300-mile journey and be confident that at the end of it, you will get the reward.
0: Billion advice, Addo. Uh, Mate, stay safe. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking me into the world of what's required to be one of the fastest men on the planet. I've enjoyed every moment of it. Um, Yeah, thanks for having a chat with me on the Howie Games, mate. I really, really appreciate it, Adam.
2: Real pleasure to be with you, Howie. Stay safe. Peace. You too. Take care.
0: Well, now you know just what is required to run sub 10. So get training, hit the gym, knock out the Olympic deadlifts and the big quad busting squats. And remember, the Paris Games are only three years away, so you better get to it. Thanks to Atto for sharing his story and his incredible insight. What a true gentleman. And I can tell you, talking to Atto over Zoom, he is still a seriously fit looking customer. Thanks to the great man, Lee Diffie, from episode 130 of the show, who organised Atto to come on the pod. On your guru, Das got this one done on a very tight schedule. If there was an Olympic event for speed podcast editing, he would be a gold medalist. Too bad he can't hit a fairway with his driver. I guess you can't be good at everything. Thanks to you all for your continued support of the show. Until Thursday, with Triple Olympic gold medalist, the goat of snowboarding, if you don't mind, Sean White. Peace and love.
2: And we can do it if if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try.
1: Listener